Hi everyone, welcome to my Parsha Shir. This week we're not talking about the Parsha actually, we're going to be talking about Purim. But that's that time of year, it's after Rosh Adar. In anticipation of Purim, we're going to be talking about this, the most amazing of all the festivals of the Jewish calendar year. And that's really what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be discussing what makes Purim so unique. Why is it so different? You know, Shabbos, Yom Tov, if I were to, I know that on uh, Pesach we eat matzah, and on Sukkot we say, you know, Sukkah, Shavuos, not quite sure, maybe we're going to talk about cheesecake, Shabbos is Shabbos, whatever it is. But essentially, they're interchangeable in a sense, right? Because we just sit down to a Yom Tov meal, we go to Shul, and uh, the, the differences between Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkot, Simchas Torah, not that big. Shabbos, really almost the same. Purim is just completely different. It's just the celebration part of Purim, the way we celebrate Purim, is completely different. Nobody gives Shlachmonus on Rosh Hashanah. By the way, when Ezra and Nehemiah came back to Eretz Yisrael from Bovel, and they told people that they have to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, guess what they told them to do or what the people did? They gave Shlachmonus. That's interesting. I guess that they had Purim on their mind. But in a sense, Purim is completely different. The way that we celebrate Purim is totally and utterly different than any other Yom Tov. We get dressed up in weird clothes and we drink alcohol and there's a sort of joyous element, a wanton joyous element to Purim that is not reflected in any other holy day of the Jewish calendar year. That's what I want to focus on today. I think it's an important topic because it clearly has spiritual connotations that stretch back to the dawn of its history. And we really need to understand it if we, in order to celebrate Purim properly. And that's what we would like to do, right? We would like to celebrate Purim properly. I'm going to start with the Mishnah. The Mishnah is in Peric Base of Maseches Megillah. And uh, you can find it in Daf Yud Zayin, Amid Aleph, in the Gemara, in Megillah. And the Mishnah says as follows. You hear that? If someone reads the Megillah out of order, by the way, if you're looking for the source sheet, please refer to the comment section or the chat section of your Zoom or the comment section on YouTube or on SoundCloud or if you're on the website rabbidana.com, you can just click on the link and it will download the uh, source sheet for you and you can refer to it. Everything that I'm going to say today can be found in the source sheet and you can use it because the Torah I teach, I want you to teach. I want you to share it. I want you to become ambassadors of Torah, ambassadors for the celebration of Purim. I want you to take the messages I'm teaching you today and I want you to teach it to others because they're really important, not just this week, every week. All the messages and the Divrei Torah that I share with you are messages that I would like you to share. There's no greater joy for a teacher than when one of his students becomes a teacher, because that means they've absorbed the message to the extent that they feel that they can share it in such a way that they themselves have students, that they themselves, and perhaps those students will also become teachers. So it's a gift that keeps on giving. It's my shlachmonus to you, and please give it to someone else. So the Mishnah says, Somebody reading the Megillah, if you go to shul, somebody's reading the Megillah, 
And he reads it out of order. He reads Perik base before he reads Perik Aleph. Instead of starting by Hebe Meach he starts with the second Perik of the Megillah. Are you Yoitza? Is that good enough? Says the Mishnah, no, it's no, you can't read a later section first and then go back and read an earlier section of the Megillah. You've not fulfilled, you've not discharged your obligation. I'm going to read the rest of the Mishnah. If we're already going to learn a Mishnah, let's learn the whole thing. Kara al peh, kara targum b'choloshoin lo yotza. If you read the Megillah by heart, that means you're very clever. You knew how to learn it by heart. By the way, we don't know anything by heart anymore. In the old days, it was very important to learn things by heart. Do you know why? Because they didn't have texts. They didn't have something to read. Before the advent of the printing press, anything that was um, on a piece of paper or parchment or vellum had to be handwritten. Even when books f- first began to be published, they, they were expensive. Paper was expensive. The printing process was expensive. Today, you don't even need to pre- print something in order to have it available for you to read. You can just look at it on your computer or on your phone. And that's why when I was a kid, we all remembered phone numbers. We didn't necessarily have a phone book to look at. We remembered phone numbers. Today, we don't need to remember anything. Everything is recorded. All you need to do is press a preset name and the number doesn't need to be remembered. But you, uh, and we had to know things by heart in those days, whereas we don't need to know things by heart today. So says the Mishnah, if you know the Megillah by heart, and you say the Megillah by heart on Purim, it's not good enough. Lo yotza. You've not been yotza. Targum. If you read it in Aramaic, in a foreign language, translation, any translation of the Megillah, not in its original biblical Hebrew, um, he has not fulfilled his obligation. That's not something that works in terms of um, discharging your duty in terms of the Megillah. Says the Mishnah, However, So we have two exceptions to the rule that I've just enunciated, which is in the Mishnah. The first is that if you read um, the Megillah in a foreign language to people who understand it profoundly, so you understand English and the people you're reading it to understand English and it's been translated perfectly. So that's, that's one caveat which... Um, offers a little bit of grey area because how do you translate something perfectly? No language can be perfectly translated and particularly the Megillah which has words which the Gemara mentions which don't lend themselves to easy translation. We may understand what they mean but they can't be easily translated. But if it was possible to have a perfect translation in a language that the audience who's listening to the Megillah understands, Yotza, then the uh, reading of the Megillah would work. And finally, and this is what's important for us, uh, ultimately, because many people who listen to the Megillah don't understand what's referred to here in the Mishnah as Ashuris, which is the original biblical Hebrew. They don't understand biblical Hebrew and it's read to them and they just maybe they can read Hebrew and they can follow it in the text, but they don't really understand it. How can they be yoyed? So they don't know what's going on. The whole point of the Megillah reading is that they should know what's going on. They should understand the story. It's about Prisumanissa, about spreading news of this great miracle that occurred in ancient Persia. But they don't understand it, says the Mishnah. Notwithstanding that, Yotza, they are Yotze. They have discharged their duty because the sacred language of Hebrew in which the Megillah was written 
is sufficiently holy to penetrate the souls even of those who don't necessarily at the surface understand the Hebrew in which it is written, in which it's being read. Okay, that's the Mishnah. I'm going to focus back on the first phrase of the Mishnah. The simple meaning of that statement, of Chazal's statement, is that whoever reads the Megillah in the wrong order hasn't discharged their duty in order to fulfill the mitzvah of Kriyasa Megillah. Makes a lot of sense. That's, that's what the Mishnah says. But the Nesivas Sholem, and we're going to look quite a bit at the Nesivas Sholem today. You know that uh, Nesivas Sholem is one of my favorites. Nesivas Sholem quotes a fascinating piece from a Baruch of Mezhibush. A Baruch of Mezhibush was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, a brother of the Dego Machane Ephraim, who is, of course, an ancestor of my wife Sabine, and an uncle of Reb Nachman of Breslov. He was the Rav and the Rebbe in Medjibush, which is where the Baal Shem Tov had lived and acted. He died in the early, I think, I'm not sure if it was the late 1700s or early 1800s. I believe it was the early 1800s. In fact, he didn't get on well, very well with Reb Nachman of Breslov, but he had a very large following. Um, and he was a first-class example of a Chassidish Rebbe of that era, thinking out of the box, not saying the type of thing that rabbis always said as far as drush, as far as homiletic explanations of text that had been traditional up until that time. He just said things which he felt were messages contained in text which were important for his audience, and he would find a way of deriving those messages from the text. Listen to what he said. Fascinating. So um, the fascinating piece from Baruch Mezhibush turns the entire, this entire statement of Chazal, of HaKoreas and Megillah on its head. And it's in a way that only a Hasidic Rebbe could do that. Of course, I have to make this very clear. Because you might think that when you hear what Baruch Mezhibush said, that he somehow dismissed the halachic implications of what the mission is talking about. That's not the case at all. Baruch Mezhibush understood that when Chazal said something in a particular way, they had a very specific meaning in terms of halacha, but that also it was said in such a way that could be interpreted in a drush fashion. And he wants to convey that drush. He wants to draw meaning out of the, the wording the verbiage of Chazal, so that we can have another lesson that's not halachic, but is nonetheless extremely important. It's, it's the type of phraseology. This is what Rebbe of Mezhibush wants to say. It's the type of phraseology that lends itself to an alternative meaning that has a powerful lesson for Jews in every era and in every geographic location. Look at source number three in your source sheet. It's taken from the Nesivas Sholem. Motzinu b'chazal. We find in Chazal the sages of the Talmud of the Sifrei Tzadikim and in the books of the great and righteous rabbis who have written over um, Jewish history. That they've been fascinated, they've been drawn to the fact that Megillus Esther is an elevated text to the extent that it's more elevated than any other text in Tanakh. Every aspect of the Megillah, which seems like a mundane, almost 
fairy story, like a fictional story that happens to be a true story, but it's expressed in this very dramatic fashion. It is a dramatic story. Nevertheless, it contains great secrets, great secrets of a spiritual nature, of a mystical nature. And each and every aspect of the story contains very important messages, very important messages for us to learn that you wouldn't get if you just, if you read the story, it's a nice story to read. Like if you'd read a storybook, if you, you know, you want to enjoy a bit of literature, you could read Megillus Esther and it's a beautiful piece of literature. You could enjoy it on that basis. But there's something much more. There's much deeper meanings to everything that's contained in Megillus Esther. Umuva Beves Avram. And the Beis Avram says, Shetzatikim roim b'megillah kol m'uro'is heino b'chol ha'ilam. Unbelievable. Every aspect of every thing that has ever, uh, ever occurred in this world somehow can be found in aspects of Megillus Esther. It's like a condensed essence. It's something which is the essence of history itself, not just Jewish history, of history itself. Every aspect of humankind, of human history, of everything that's ever happened to human beings throughout history can be found somewhere in the Megillah. And here he quotes this piece that I've already introduced. The Baruch Mejibush says as follows. He says, to, in order to explain or to understand or to have another alternative understanding of this phrase, somebody who reads the Megillah out of order hasn't been Yotze. What is the word Lemafreya? generally means. Do you know what the word lemafreya means in Hebrew? It means in the past. Something that happened then, not now. Something that happened then. If you say something happened lemafreya, it happened at some point in the past. He says, Do you know what it means? If you think that this story of the Megillah is something that happened before, if you think it's something that didn't happen now, but something that happened at some point in the past, the distant past, very often you read these stories and you think, oh, it's wonderful history. Isn't that fascinating? But it's got nothing to do with right now. I mean, of course, now is totally different. Now we live in an era which is contemporary, and that's a history book story. If you read the Megillah and you think it's Lemafreya, Milifnim, it's something that happened before, lo yotza. You didn't understand the Megillah. You didn't understand that it, it affects and speaks to events that are happening right now where you are to you. Can you imagine that? That's what it means. That's what Chazal meant. At every point in human history, right now, Wherever you are, whatever year it is, you need to imagine that the Megillus Esther story is a story that is occurring right at this very moment. Similar, in a sense, to this idea on Seder night that we have to imagine as if we ourselves came out of Egypt. But that is because we need to relive that story in order to have a sense of our Jewish nationhood and our Jewish spiritual identity. But this is something slightly different. It's a similar idea, but it's slightly different. It's telling us that Megillus Esther is not a Lemafreya story. Read it 
as if it's happening now. Change the names, change the locations, change some aspects of the story, perhaps. But in essence, there is always people who are plotting to destroy and be destructive and undermine and use money and use wealth and use influence and use whatever power, whatever they have, in order to have a benign impact on the world around them. They are Haman. And then there's a there's an Esther, a Queen Esther, Esther Hamalka, there's a Mordechai, there's always an Achashverosh. All these characters, all these elements of the story that you think happened then in Persia are things that are happening right now. That's what Rebbe Baruch Mejibur says. Somebody is reading the Megillah as if it's Lemafreya. It's a history story. He didn't get it. And therefore, he cannot discharge his duty that way. Says the Nasiva Shola, why is Purim superior? Why do we have this idea that the Megillah is a superior text? Why do we have this idea that Purim is so important? Listen to what he has to say. Fascinating. Source number four in your source sheet. Harambam Baperik Beis Bemehilchus Megillah. Rambam, the second chapter of his Alochas about Purim, he says that when it comes to the Messianic era, all the books of Tanakh will, will be obliterated, will be not important. I mean, of course, they'll still exist, but they won't be um, sanctified in the same sense as they are right now. There's one exception to that rule. Megillas Esther. The scroll of Esther, the story of this ancient liberation from certain death, from a holocaust in ancient Persia, uh, through the medium of Esther Mordechai against the wicked, evil Haman, that story will, su will survive through the Messianic era, will be considered a holy text even when Mashiach comes. Just like the five books of the Torah, which are, of course, the Torah is the essence of Judaism. The rest of Tanakh will be, I don't want to use the word discarded, but you get the sense that it won't have the same relevance anymore. But one book will be an exception, and that is Megillas Esther. And just like, says the Rambam, the, uh, the oral Torah, all the halachas that explain and augment Torah knowledge through the, in the Talmud, we have them, just like they won't be discarded when Moshiach comes, so to Megillas Esther, and he doesn't really explain himself, Megillas Esther will not be discarded, will not be done away with when Moshiach comes. But the rest of Tanakh, let's call it Nevi'im Ksuvim Nach, that won't be as important. They won't be taken as seriously. It seems that Megillas Esther is considered holier, more elevated, more special, more unique than every other book in Nevi'im and Kusuvim. We need to really understand. I mean, obviously, we don't have um, a crystal ball. We're not the Rambam. We're not the great spiritual mentors of Klal Yisrael, but nevertheless, says the Nesiv Shalom, um, Shalom Noach Berzovsky of Slonim, he's trying to say, and of course he was a very great man, he says, but, uh, you know, based on our limited knowledge, our limited understanding, we still need to understand, why is it so important to treat the Megillah with such reverence? What is it about the Megillah that makes it so special? Let's see if we can find what we call 
in Yiddish, Hebrew, a mahalach, some way of understanding as to what it is about the Megillah that makes it so special. Matzinu b'svar makadoshim, we find in the holy books, she'efligu begoidel kedushas yom ha'purim. It's not just Megillah's Esther which is considered special, as the Rambam said. By the way, it's based on a chazal, but it's not just Megillah's Esther which is considered so special. Actually, Purim itself, the day of Purim, this concept of Purim, whatever it is that underlines and is the foundation of this festival, is considered very, very, very holy. One of the earliest of the Hasidic masters in Poland, a very, very great man. He wrote a book called Oyev Yisrael, the lover of Israel. That's what he was. He loved every Jew so much. And he writes about Purim. These are, these are his holy words. They knew what they were talking about, Chazal, when they spoke about Purim, that it is as important, as special, as elevated as Yom Kippur itself. Can you imagine that? To compare Purim to Yom Kippur? But they said, Yom Kippurim. Do you know what Yom Kippur is? It's the day that's like Purim. Purim is more special. What do we do on Purim? We eat, we drink, we have a fun time. What do we do on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippurim. What do we do? We fast, we're miserable, we stand in shul all day, we're doing true. <laughs> How can you compare the two? How can you say that Yom Kippur is like Purim? Surely if Yom Kippur was like Purim, we'd all be drinking and reveling and giving shlachmonas, right? But that's not what we're doing. We're sitting in shul with a kittle on and davening. And fasting. So how is it? And yet that's what the Svar Makdoshim said. That's what the book said. They said that Purim and Yom Kippur have a lot in common. They have a commonality. And that means to say that it is a very special and holy day of the calendar year. And the Medrash actually says it. All the festivals will be done away with, they won't be irrelevant anymore. In But the days of Purim will never be done away with, they will never be abandoned, ever, even after Mashiach comes. I'm not sure what that means, and I don't want to tell you that I know what that means. So I have no sense of it. But the Medrash does say it. The Medrash says that at some point after Moshiach comes, there won't be the festivals. To what extent um, the halachas of the festivals won't be relevant, I don't know. But what I do know is that the Medrash is very clear about Purim. Purim will remain. It will remain in place. It's very important. So important that it can never be abandoned. It can never be cut out of the calendar. That's what it says in the Medrash. Says How is it possible that this Yom Tov of Purim will remain and all the other Mayadim, whatever that may mean, are going to be are not going to remain. How is it possible that Purim is considered to be more important than Pesach? How is it possible that Purim is considered more important than Shavuos, than Sukkot, than Shemini Atzeres? What are you talking about? 
Why, why would we even suggest that? Why would the Medrash say it? And yet it says it. So Purim must have something very unique, something very special, something very important. And let's try and get to the bottom of that today. Let's see if we can find some way of understanding it. The Nasiba Sholem now says that he wants to talk about the unique aspect of Purim that is not a part of any of the other festivals. And he does so through trying to explore this idea that every festival has something to offer the Jew who celebrates it and who observes it. Gam yesh les amek bimhus avoidas hayoyim. We need to understand what is it that we're doing on Purim that's so unique and so special that it defines the Yom Tov, it defines this festival day to the exclusion of any other day in the Jewish calendar year. Kiyodua, it's well known. Let's be clear. Every Yom Tov, and you know, you've heard me give a shir on Pesach, about Pesach, not on Pesach. You've heard me give a shir about Shavuos, you've heard me give a shir about Sukkot, about Simchas Torah, about Hanukkah, about every Yom Tov, about every special day in the Jewish calendar year. And we know that there are unique aspects of those calendar days, of those Yom Tovim, that we can get close to Hashem by doing a particular thing. So, for example, I'll just give you one example, because the next Yom Tov after Purim is Pesach, there is a special aspect of Pesach called eating matzah. And by eating matzah, we're going to have a special relationship with Hashem through eating matzah, or by not eating chametz, by, by making sure that our house is chametz-free, and we didn't eat chametz, that's the, what he calls here, the Indian Seguli Meyuchad. The very unique aspect, definition of this festival that enables us um, to come close to Hashem, which is something that we want. So somehow we couldn't do that on Erev Pesach, we can't do it on Moitzoy Pesach, I couldn't do it today. If I ate matzah today, it wouldn't help me. It's not going to bring me close to Hashem in the same way as if I eat matzah on Pesach. So that's the unique aspect of Pesach, right? This opportunity only offers itself to the Jew who observes it on that particular day. And if you eat matzah on any other day, you could say, listen, I can't celebrate Pesach this year on the week that it's Pesach. Listen. Come on. I mean, usually Pesach is in the middle of April. This, this year it starts at the beginning of March. I'll tell you what. I'm going to do Seder the same day as I did Seder last year. Come on. I, I need that. Last week of March is really important. I, I, I need that time. I'm going to celebrate, pe, celebrate Pesach a week later. I'm going to do it 100% problem. I'm going to clean my house of Chomets. I'm going to have Seder night a week later. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to wear my kittle. I'm going to have a Seder plate. I'm going to have more. I'm going to have matzah. I'm going to have charesis. I'm going to do everything. I'm going to sing Dayenu 100 times. Does it work? Can it work? Can't work. Why? Because it's only Mesugal to that particular Zman. The fact that you ate Matzah on Pesach has a specific ability to elevate your connection to Hashem, to bring you closer to Hashem. Okay, so we understand that. And that's uh, um, in the words of the Nesiva Shalom is Kyodua. It's well known, it's self understood. Okay, so now we know that to be a true. We've proven that to be the case. How do we explain Purim? 
What is it about Purim that's special that connects us to Hashem? Right? I'll tell you how. Because the mitzvahs of the day are drinking and having a wonderful feast and having a good time. Uh, um, so there's a and then there's this idea that you need to get drunk until you're completely clueless about what's going on around you. There's no other festival. Are you ever told to get drunk on Shabbos? I know that there's such a thing as a kiddish club in shuls, and people sneak out during Haftorah, and they go and have a bit of whiskey. I said once in my shul that there's something much more exclusive in my shul than the kiddish club. You know what it's called? It's called the Haftorah club. The people who stay inside and they listen to the Haftorah, that's in a more exclusive club. People go out and they have a bit of a drink. Okay, but that's not part of your Shabbos uh, obligations. Uh, people want to feel good on Shabbos. They want to have a, a, a drink or two of whiskey. I understand. On Purim, it's an expectation. Uh, so you're going to say, what do we have to do on Saturday night? We have to drink four cups of wine. Ah, you have to drink four cups of wine. But the halacha says that if you're going to get shikha from the wine, it's no good. And you have to dilute it a bit. You have to make sure maybe there's a bit of grape juice in it. And there's some people who don't have a tolerance for alcohol. You don't have to drink alcohol on Pesach night if you have no tolerance for it. Ah, but the Gemara says, it's clear, it's a Gemara Megillah. It's a song. You'll hear it on Purim. You have to get shik on Purim. You have to drink. You have to get tipsy on Purim. It's part of the Avoidas Hayoim. How does that make sense? How does it make sense to include as part of the Avoidas Hayoim that somebody has to get shika? That somebody has to lose his faculties? What's the point in it? But that's the halacha. Another thing you have to do is you have to give gifts of food to your friends. We mentioned it earlier. Is there any? Do you have to give gift of food to your friends for Pesach? On the first day of Pesach, do you run around giving Mishlach Monas? No, you don't. In fact, in many communities, they won't eat Mishlach Monas from your house because they'll only eat in their own homes. They won't trust your food on Pesach. And yet on Purim, it's just a month before, you're running around from house to house, from home to home, from friend to friend, Giving shlachmonas out. How does that make sense? What is that about? You have a duty on Purim to give charity to the poor. Do you have such a duty on Pesach? Well, before Pesach, it's true. It says, and Chazal tell us, that we have to make sure that even an Oni can have Arba Koisos, but not on Pesach itself. And it's not one of the mitzvahs of the day. It's you, you as a community have to have a tamchui, have to have a community fund that can ensure that people have what they need, that they have the wine, they have the matzah for Pesach in order that they can discharge their duty, fulfill their obligations. But on Purim itself, you need to make sure that you've given matonai slevyonim, you've given charity to the poor. You have to make sure that that's distributed on the day. So you've made the poor people, the people who are less fortunate than yourselves, happy. You know, I have a fund that I collect money before Purim. People give hundreds, thousands of dollars before Purim. And I make sure it's distributed on the day of Purim, not a day before or a day later. I have an agreement with all the people who distribute the funds 
that I collect before Purim. And by the way, if you want to distribute to that fund, please email me, rabbi at yimbh.org, rabbi at yimbh.org. You can participate in this campaign. I guarantee you that the money will be distributed on Purim. Matonos le'evyoinim is a mitzvah hayoyim. It's a mitzvah of the day. There's no other yomtuf. Simchas Torah, you don't give charity to the poor. Shruz, you don't give charity to the poor. On a regular Shabbos, you don't give charity to the Purim. One day in the year where we have been obligated. It's a mitzvah to give charity to the poor on that day, for that day. To bring joy to those who are less fortunate than you. Unbelievable. Matonis le'evyoinim. So you see all these obligations, they have no counterpart in any Yomim Tovim throughout the Jewish calendar year, but on Purim, they are required. That we don't have any mitzvahs like this in any of the other Yomim Tovim. And one other aspect that we really need to appreciate, we need to understand, is how exactly, let's remember what Purim is about. You know that Shabbos, we're going to read Pasha Zohar. Last three psukim in Parshas Kiseitse, in Dvorim, right? Timcha Zecha Molik. Wipe out the memory of Amolik. What's Purim about? We killed Hamon, we killed his ten sons. Timcha Zecha Molik. This seems to be one of the aspects of Purim that you need to um, be engaged in. Mechias Amolik. Exactly. How is Chayev Odom Lebesume the Puria? What's that got to do with Mechia Samolik? I'm going to drink a lot of beer and whiskey and wine and I'm going to get a bit chicka and that way, Timcha Zecha Molik. Really? You're going to go to the pub and have a beer and that's going to be Timcha Zecha Molik? What's that got to do with Timcha Zecha Molik, Mechia Samolik? How is that relevant? Shezeikar in Yonish or Purim. That's one of the most important aspects of Purim. How are we serving that particular requirement? With the mitzvah sayoim, with matonas levioim, with mishlach monis, with mishteh, with suda, and with adaloyada. How is it possible that we've served that obligation? What have we done to make sure that Amalek will never reappear in our lives? Habir bazeh, dini kol ha'chagim heim o'yemei kudusha, sh'aliyodo miskarav ish yehudi mistabek l'ashem yisbarach. Let's remember, every chag, every festival, Every time we celebrate a special day, what we call a holy day, a Yom Tov, in the Jewish calendar, it's an opportunity for us to get closer to Hashem Yisbarach. It's underlying motivation, it's defining characteristic, is that we should get close to Hashem. We should be able to come face to face with Hashem. And so, although Chanukah and Purim were rabbinically um, obligated festivals, they have this same idea that through whatever it is that we do on these festivals, we should, be, we should come closer to Hashem. The whole the Hadar Gahidlog is the, the whole idea is that we should elevate ourselves to the next level. We should become more special. We should be able to be more spiritual, more connected to Hashem through that day. That's the purpose of Pesach, right? We sit down at Seder night, not so that we can eat matzah. It's not going to be our first choice of food. 
I, I mean, I, I know that uh, lots of people like uh, French roast and brisket that they're going to have on the Seder night or boiled chicken. Maybe not so much the boiled chicken. And there may be people who like grain and therefore they're going to enjoy eating morrow. But that's not the reason. I mean, you wouldn't necessarily sit down on a, a, an evening together with the entire family and shove your face full of morrow. And yet that's what we do. Why do we do it? Because we want to become closer to Hashem. That's why we're doing it. Somehow through that act, we are connecting ourselves to Hashem. We're in these days which are lit up and where there's um, our brain, but our intellectual capacities are increased. Everything about the day is elevating. It's elevating spiritually. It's elevating intellectually. It's elevating in a mystical sense, in ways that we don't understand. Somehow we are elevated through the Chagim. Even at a time when we may not be, you know, in the best possible situation. And particularly last year, and I fear that this year, when it comes to Purim, hopefully not Pesach, you know, we weren't necessarily in a situation where we could celebrate and be happy and be together with family. We were on our own. We were celebrating Pesach a time of, at a time when it was very difficult. We weren't able to do it in the same way as we did it in the past. Or Purim. Last year Purim, of course, many people did celebrate. But this year Purim, may, people may be somewhat muted in their celebration. Yet it offers us an opportunity of growth in our spirituality and our connectedness to God. That's the point of the festival. If we're going to look at the calendar, if I'm going to ask anybody, I'm going to ask a kid in school, what's the most important day of the Jewish calendar year, the holiest day of the year? Everyone puts their hand up. Hello, teacher, choose me. I choose whichever kid it is. He's going to say, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. Was the day that Moshe Rabbeinu went up on the mountain, second time. He was there for 40 days. He goes up on the mountain, Tzim Kippur. And God gives him the second luchos. And God says to him, Salachti kidvorecha, forgiven the Jewish people, as you requested, as you required. It's the most special day of the year. There's nothing like Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is powerful. Yom Kippur, the Rambam says in Hilchas Tshuva, offers us an opportunity that no other day of the year offers us. We have an opportunity in Yom Kippur to do Tshuva like on no other day of the year can't do it on Erev Yom Kippur. You can't do it on Motzi Yom Kippur. In Yom Kippur, we have this incredible opportunity and we want to drag it on and we have this tradition. We drag it on a bit till Hoshan Rabbah and according to some, even all the way into the last day of Hanukkah. But ultimately, Yom Kippur, you know, everybody knows, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. Solachti Kidvarecha, Moshe Rabbeinu, Har Sinai. We get the second Luchas. We get a second chance. There's no holier day, right? Every generation since Moshe Rabbeinu Salachti Kitvarech on Har Sinai, 
the Karnim. That was the day where they went into the Kodesh Kadoshim. They went into the Holy of Holiest. That was the time when they went Chazal asked a question, but surely, how is it possible that the Kohen God or the High Priest can go into the Kodesh Kadoshim? How, how is he even allowed to go in there? How does he have permission? It says in the Posuk, it's a Posuk in the Torah that says that no Tsar, no human being is allowed to set foot in the Kodesh Kadoshim. And that the Kohen Godel is instructed to go there on Yom Kippur. Do you know why? How is it possible? Ask Kazal. How is it possible that he goes in there if he was born of a woman, if he's a human being? Say Chazal, that when the Kohen God or the High Priest went in the Kodesh Kadoshim, he's not considered human. He's elevated to the extent that he's no longer a human being. He's on a new level. He's like an angel. He's like, I don't know what he's like. He's just not you and me. He's not himself that he was yesterday and he's going to be tomorrow. He is a Kohen Godel on Yom Kippur in the Kodesh Kadoshim, not a human being. And therefore he's allowed in, even though the Posik says, that no person is allowed to be in the Oil Maid. And yet he's allowed to go in because he is considered to be something beyond his human limitations. This is the highest level of elevation that a human being can be in. That's what a Kohen Godel was. This is the holiest day, much holier than any of the other days, the festival days that we have. Shabbos, Shabbos, and we know that we treat it like Shabbos, even though it's not Shabbos. By the way, sometimes it can be on Shabbos, but even if it's not on Shabbos, it's on another day of the week. We treat Yom Kippur like Shabbos. It has an elevated status. There are certain things that you can't do even more than on a normal Shabbos. Shabbos, Shabbos, it's a double Shabbos. That's what Yom Kippur is. But in parallel to Yom Kippur, there's another day of the Jewish calendar year. Yom Hapurim, not Yom Kippurim, Yom Hapurim, the Purim day. On Purim, a person has the possibility, the ability to elevate themselves to the level that they could elevate themselves on Yom Kippur. It has the same power. Unbelievable. This is unbelievable. Yom Kippur is in the Torah, Shabbat Shabbat And yet we have a day which is rabbinically mandated called Purim, which has the same possibility of elevation in terms of spirituality, of us being able to be beyond our human limitations. It's called Purim. It's like Yom Kippur. And yet, we don't fast on Purim. It's exactly the opposite. All the obligations of Purim. If you could write a script, if you could put together a list of rules that were the total opposite of what you have to do on Yom Kippur and for Yom Kippur, you'd write the rule book about Purim. That's what you would do. Because Purim is the exact opposite. It is the antithesis of Yom Kippur. Inyan ha-Purim hu lehefech shem is'ale mitoich ha-matzif ha-yorud v'ha-shofel b'yoysa shalach ha-sheichim v'e'noigaloi v'hu b'toich hester goda. Do you know why? It's a day on which, in which we go 
to, as it were, the lowest level, the most physical, the most material behavior that we can find, and through that we elevate ourselves. We're not going into the Kodesh Kadoshim. We're not bringing Kabbanas. We're not fasting. We're not not washing. We're not doing all the things that we do on Yom Kippur, davening in a shul all day, whatever it is, in order to become holy. We're doing the exact opposite. We're eating, we're drinking, we're giving presents, we're having a good time. Those are things we do on Purim, and yet, through that, we become elevated to the same level as Yom Kippur. It's the exact opposite, and yet it achieves the same result. Ukamamar Chazal, as Chazal have taught us, Esther min How do we know about Esther in the Torah? Because everything has a source in the Torah. You know that you can find everything in the Torah. You want to know about... I, I, I've just published a book... I'm not sure if it's available yet in your bookstores. It's called Hearts and Minds. It's 160 articles that I've written on every parsha in the Torah. I've written many more, but this is a book, 750 pages, and it's about every single subject you can imagine. It's about psychology, it's about politics, about diplomacy, it's about the United Nations, about Donald Trump, about Jeremy Corbyn, it's about philosophy, it's about theology medicine, history, whatever subject you can imagine I've written on. Everything connected in the Torah with a source, a root in the Torah. I have found every single subject, a reference to it in the Torah in some way, shape or form. There is nothing that you can't find in the Torah. Say Chazal, Esther mina Torah minayin. How do we know that Esther is in the Torah. Where is the source, the root of Esther in the Torah? It's a posuk. The posuk says, I will hide my face, says God, on that day. The, the literary connection is Haster Aster, Esther. By the way, Esther wasn't her real name. Esther was her Persian name. But where do we know that that name has relevance in the Torah? The entire Megillus Esther is a guidebook for every member of the Amakodesh of the Holy Nation of those who subscribe to God, who believe in God, who know that God is in control. It is the almanac. It is the central authority for how to find God at the level of Yom Kippur in a matzav, in a situation where God doesn't seem to exist where God seems to be as far away as possible. I'm drinking whiskey and wine, and God is right there in front of me, next to me, in my life. Like Yom Kippur. God says, I'm hidden. I'm not even there. I'm right there. I'm right there, alongside you, with you. It's Purim. You're having a good time. Mishter usuuda. Ad deloyoda until you know nothing. I'm right there with you. It may seem but actually I'm right there with you. I'm alongside you. As Chazal teach us, and it's mentioned many times in the Svarim that talk about Purim, 
that every single place where it says the word Hamelech, and it says it many, many times in the Megillah, Hakavona Lemalchoshel Oilam. The word Hamelech is not talking about Achashverosh. Actually, it's talking about Melech Malche Hamlochim, the ultimate King of Kings, God Himself. Melech Malche Hamlochim Hakadosh Baruch Hu, Ach Heyoyis Vachol Inyan Hamegillah Hu Hester Gam Zeb Hester. Just like every other aspect of the Megillah had something to tell us about the lives that we lead, but it's hidden. We need to find it. We need to look for it. We need to find that lesson. So to God is in every time it says Hamelech, that's God, but we need to find it, we need to recognize it, we need to embrace that idea that God can be found even where it seems he can't be found. In this book, which is the ultimate storybook of Tanakh, Megillas Esther, where God's name isn't mentioned, no Novi is mentioned, nothing. We don't even talk about it in that sense. It's talked about in a literary sense. It's a fantastic story. It's exciting. It's dramatic. We're not quite sure what the end is going to be. Of course, we know what the end is going to be. That's why we're celebrating Purim. But when the story was ongoing, if you're reading it for the first time, you don't know how it's going to end. It's a dramatic tale. It's a narrative. God is right there, even though he's never mentioned, even though it doesn't seem apparent that he was involved in this story. He's deeply involved. Let's look at Rebzodek HaKoyen of Lublin. He wants to talk about our victory against Amalek. Let's think about the Gentile nations of the world. When they're eating, they're drinking, they're getting drunk. What do they talk about? The drunker they get, what do they talk about? They talk about the latest TV show and they talk about, um, I, I'm sorry to say this, inappropriate subjects. They talk about, you know, uh, um, uh, they tell dirty jokes and they get more lewd and more inappropriate. The more they get drunk, the more they eat, the more they feel that feeling of drunkenness, the more loose their tongue becomes. Sort of a Tzodek coin says. He says, I've got the best proof for you. It's right there in the Megillah. Right at the beginning of the Megillah. What did Achashverosh do when he got drunk? He says, bring my wife Vashti naked to parade herself in front of all the men at the party. That's what he said. Like Russia. But why did he do it? Because he got drunk. Because he'd lost all control. He'd lost all his dignity. That's what happened. That's the very beginning of the Megillah. The whole Parsha of Haman began because Vashti didn't want to come. Therefore, Vashti was banished. It was Haman who gave the advice, find a new queen. The whole thing came about as a result. Haman was elevated. Mordechai didn't like him, therefore Haman wanted to kill the Jewish people. It all started because of the drunkenness that took place at the party that Achashverosh had, where he'd called because he was behaving inappropriately. He called for his wife to parade herself naked in front of the guests. But what's the end of the Megillah? The end of the story of the Megillah, where the liberation came, the redemption came for the Jewish nation, was the Mishta of Esther. She also had a party. She had a party with Haman and Achashverosh. Now, we always imagine that it was just these three people sitting in, uh, around a table. And that's not the way it happened. 
no king comes into a room where there's not something going on. King Achashverosh, Queen Esther, Haman, who's the most important person, he's the viceroy of Persia, are sitting there. Do you think there was no one else there? Of course there were people there. Imagine that if he's, she's making a party for the king and for his most trusted advisor, she made a party as, as parties are for such people. Um, she had all the types of entertainment that you can imagine that are appropriate for such a party, for such an important person. She had entertainers, she had music, she had waiters, she had everything was going on there. She had plenty. The bar wasn't one bar, there were three bars. But you could three people, you need three bars. That's the type of party that Esther made. And you can imagine if Esther was there, she couldn't sit there, you know, tightly in her seat and just wait for something to happen. Part of the plan was that she had to participate in the party, and she did. She drank, she listened to the music, she got into conversations with them, she did whatever it took to show that she was partying alongside. This is what Abtotik says. Esther behaved in a party fashion together with Achashverosh and Haman until that moment of truth. But it didn't matter what she did, how much she partied, how much she drank, made no difference. Ultimately, she behaved like Esther Hamalka. That's who she was. Her closeness to God was not damaged or limited or in any way um, uh, reduced or diminished. As a result of her participating in that party. It was only because she took herself to that limit that she was to to eradicating Amalek, to obliterating Amalek. You need to go into his territory. You need to delve into his life form, as it were. Become almost like him, but not be like him. And be close to Hashem. In that sphere. Ultimately, the revelry, the partying that she participated in, that one can participate in, Hashem has control. And if you are close to Hashem, He can make sure that any such behavior that is inappropriate won't happen in a party that you're doing because of a tzadak dusha. Because if your aspiration is to be close to Hashem, it doesn't matter how, how much you drink. If your relationship with Hashem is so strong that nothing that can be done will shake you from that faith, then you can drink as much as you like and eat as much as you like and be with whoever you like. Your faith in Hashem will just get stronger, not, won't get weaker. That's the power of Purim, the power of Esther's mishter, of her feast that she had with Haman and Achashverosh, that she could take that feast with Vashti at the beginning of the Megillah and turn it on its head and undo everything that it had achieved because she was the same Esther Hamalka. She was the Kedusha and the Tahara of a Jewish woman, even in the midst of that revelry and that um, feasting and that drinking. And that's why Purim, which is like Yom Kippur, 
How do we celebrate it? Not by fasting, not by reducing our contact with the physical material world. The exact opposite. We have feasts on Purim, Sudas Purim, Bemishte, Besimcha, Levare, She Simchas Yisrael, Dovuk Bikdusha. To demonstrate that the joy of a Jewish person, someone with deep faith in Hashem as a Jew, is through exactly that medium which in the Ummah Yisraelam, who don't believe in Hashem, would lead them down the wrong path. It doesn't matter how many jokes and what you can be dressed up and you can have, be having a good time and singing and dancing and all the things that you do, which we don't do in Yom Kippur, but you're doing it for Hashem. You're doing it because you want to get, get closer to Hashem. You never get drunk during the rest of the year. That's why it's, Purim is so unique. It's to prove that even when you do, you're close to Hashem. But it's not something you do every, every day of the year. Of course you don't. That's not the way you behave. You don't have a, 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 some, some secret party somewhere that you can have it every single day. You don't uh, have a, um, a party every night with your friends. That's not the way, even on Yom Tov, that's not the way we behave. That's not the Jewish way, but we have one day where we do do it to prove that when we do do it, we do it l'shem shamayim. We do it because we want to have a relationship with Hashem. Everything that we do on that day on Purim is l'shem shamayim. And even though on that day we may get to a stage where we're very tipsy, even a little bit drunk, even beyond tipsy. That's the time when you forget. When you're tipsy, your normal, ordinary, day-to-day um, -day faculties that keep you going and keep you on the straight and narrow, you forget them. You don't have those. You don't have control of yourself in the same way. You don't in any way reduce yourself from the um, closeness to Hashem and the holiness that you would like to uh, to be close to. Even when you've forgotten everything, even when you're not in control of your faculties, it was L'Shem Shamayim and therefore you're still close to Hashem. You know, the Gemara says, Chazal tell us, that, uh, that if you want to know who somebody really is, it's an alliteration. Through their money, how they spend their money, when they're drunk, or when they get very angry. You can know somebody. If you want to really know somebody, you'll know them when they get drunk. Purim is a window into somebody's real personality, into their genuine personality. And on Purim, when we let everything go, that's Mechia Samalik. That's when we are able to demonstrate that we have no Amalek in us. We're not Amalek. We believe in Hashem 100%. And by the way, if when you get drunk on Purim, you find yourself not doing it L'Shem Shamayim, you know that too. You know that perhaps there's some Pagam. Perhaps you wouldn't be able to keep Yom Kippur properly and be in the Kodesh Kodoshim as the Kohen Godel. Why? Because there's something in you which is not quite right. And Purim offers you the opportunity to examine yourself, to look at yourself in the mirror, even in that situation, that particular situation. And that is an opportunity that only comes once a year. And that's what makes Purim so special. So special that we'll even celebrate it when Moshiach comes. That's what makes Megillas Esther so special. More special than all the other books of Nevi'im Kesuvim. That's indeed what makes Purim unique 
to the extent that it could be compared to the very holiest day of the Jewish calendar year, Yom Kippur. We'll leave it here for today.